Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. my absolute pleasure to welcome my friend, colleague, and amazing EM researcher, Dr. Catherine Varner to EM Cases. Dr. Varner, welcome to EM Cases, and just tell us a little bit about your professional background. Thanks, Anton. I'm excited to be here. And uh, I am a clinician scientist at the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, also known as SHREMI, at Mount Sinai Hospital, where I'm also a practicing emergency physician. And I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. At North York General, where I work, we see dozens of patients every day in their first trimester with belly pain and or bleeding. And there seems to be quite a variation in practice when it comes to how to work these patients up. Uh, We covered first trimester bleeds in episode 23, but it's so common and the guidelines have changed a bit since then that I thought it'd be great to have Dr. Varner tell her story of her best case ever of a patient in their first trimester. So Dr. Varner... Let it rip. Let's hear your best case ever. So this is a case back from uh, my training, and I think it really exemplifies a lot of the pitfalls that we commonly encounter in diagnosing and managing ectopic pregnancy. So at the time, I was working as a trainee at uh, a hospital that did not have gynecology services available. And if we encountered a gynecologic emergency, we were able to transfer fairly quickly to a tertiary care hospital. And it was a busy evening shift. Uh, pretty typical of most evening shifts in emergency departments. And we were seeing a lot of patients in hallway beds. And our nurse came to me and asked for an analgesic order for a young woman uh, who is writhing in pain on a stretcher in the hallway. And I went to see the patient. She was 30 years old. She looked really uncomfortable. She was holding her lower abdomen, kind of writhing in discomfort, uh, and uh, you know, described how she had had pain over the last 24 hours that had been escalating. And earlier in the day, she had attended a walk-in clinic where she had a physical exam done and some other testing. And she handed me a note uh, from the physician at the, at the walk-in clinic. And the note described a a 30-year-old woman with abdominal pain for 24 hours and rule-out appendicitis was the working diagnosis because the patient had undergone an ultrasound at the walk-in clinic by a radiologist where they could not identify the appendix, uh, but she had a trace free fluid in her right lower quadrant and a negative urine uh, test uh, that uh, only had positive leukes and trace blood. A negative urine beta, right? Yes, a negative urine beta. And so on uh, further history, uh, she described this pain as having been ongoing and and had gotten significantly worse since the, the visit this morning and the subsequent ultrasound. And she was previously healthy, uh, had never been pregnant before. She had had no history of sexually transmitted infections. And she said that uh, she was in a monogamous relationship where they intermittently use contraception. Her last menstrual period was about six weeks before, but she said she's frequently irregular. Uh, She also alluded to the fact that her urine pregnancy test at the walk-in clinic today was negative. 
And her physical exam when her vitals were were completely normal and uh, her abdomen was soft but had uh, quite discernible right lower quadrant tenderness, um, kind of extended through her lower abdomen. And uh, at that point, I ordered some analgesia, which included morphine and gravel, and as well as routine blood work, which included a serum beta HCG. After receiving morphine, she looked a lot more comfortable, and I went on about seeing my uh, other patients. So what were you thinking at this point in terms of the likelihood that she had appendicitis versus something else, and what was in your differential at that point? So certainly appendicitis was one of the highest things on my list. I also thought about pelvic inflammatory disease, Um, you know, despite having no risk factors per se of sexually transmitted infections. She was in a hallway, so at the time I did not do a pelvic exam, um, and I was just going to wait and see what her further investigations looked looked like before going forward. All right, so what, what did the blood work come back as? So about an hour later, the nurse who was um, helping me look after this patient came and said, did you know she was pregnant? And it turned out that her beta HCG was uh, 52, uh, which was was quite a surprise to me at the time. And I went back to the bedside uh, to reassess this patient. We also got some of the other blood work back. So her hemoglobin was 115 and her white blood cell count was 13 and the rest of her blood work was completely normal. Uh, so I, I obviously went back to the bedside and looked at this patient now with very different eyes. Um, yeah, like I bet. So now you've got a patient with a beta of 52. Uh, so now they're pregnant with with pain. Still could be appendicitis, but of course, ectopic is now in your differential. Uh, did you do a POCUS at that point? So we certainly did. So uh, the attending physician I was working with uh, and I did uh, POCUS together. We saw that there was uh, free fluid around her uterus as well as her, her right ovary. And then she also had a trace amount of free fluid in, in Morrison's pouch. And uh, it was one of those moments where the whole team looked at each other and um, you know qu- felt quite sheepish because we, we realized that we had initially missed the diagnosis of a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. All right. So at this point, I bet you got onto the horn with uh, the gynecologist. Um, what happened after that? Did you get the patient straight to the OR? Or? So she was transferred quite quickly to the tertiary care hospital. And what was interesting was that even the gynecologist was quite insistent about having a transvaginal ultrasound interpreted by a radiologist because of the distraction of the appendicitis at the original visit. So she did undergo a transvaginal ultrasound quite urgently. It documented she had moderate amount of free fluid in her abdomen uh, and a structure in the right lower quadrant that looked like an ectopic pregnancy that was around six centimeters in size. She went straight to the are from from there and uh, had a salpingectomy after seeing an obvious right-sided rupture ectopic pregnancy, and she had about a liter and a half of blood in her abdomen. She wow. had a, a relatively uncomplicated post-operative course, uh, and and at the end uh, did fine. All right, so Dr. Varner, you've got this patient who uh, who initially was everyone thought was appendicitis. It turned out to be ectopic. This is a very common scenario we see uh, in the emergency department. What did you learn from this case? So I think the first and foremost thing was how easily we can be biased by test results and the opinions of other providers. And uh, certainly when I was seeing this patient initially, I thought she had appendicitis and and I fixated on on that diagnosis and really didn't even consider the fact that she may have had a, a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, especially in the context of a, a negative urine beta-HCG. Right. That's that classic cognitive error of diagnostic momentum. 
where the referring physician says they think it's appendicitis and then the nurse says they think it's appendicitis and then you think it's appendicitis and then you fail to to keep your differential wide. Uh, so that that's a great learning point. Let's talk a little bit about the the pitfalls in the diagnosis of ectopic. What were some of the kind of pitfalls that you learned? You had mentioned the urine beta HCG. Well, let's start with that. What's the pitfall with the urine beta HCG? I think relying on a urine beta HCG is really inappropriate in any clinical setting where you're excluding ectopic pregnancy in a patient. And there are a couple of reasons why. So the detectable level of a beta HCG for a urine test can be anywhere from 20 to 150. Um, and uh, in early pregnancy, these uh, tests can therefore be false negative. These tests are also quite user dependent. So uh, both in how the sample is interpreted as well as how the sample is collected. And patients can also have a false negative if their urine is very dilute. All right. So yeah, if they've been drinking liters of water, then uh, they could certainly have a negative urine beta ACG. So I guess the first pitfall there is relying on a urine beta ACG in early pregnancy. Really, we need to do serum beta ACGs. Uh, but when it comes to serum beta HCGs, uh, this patient had a beta HCG of only 52. And traditionally, we've been taught that there's a discriminatory zone of 1,000, that under 1,000, it's very unlikely that someone has an ectopic pregnancy. Yet, this patient had a beta HCG of 52. I've even heard about case reports of lower than that. What do we need to know about beta HCGs when it comes to ruling out ectopics? So the first thing I would, I would say with respect to really ectopics is there really is no discriminatory zone where an ectopic pregnancy is not possible for the beta-HCG. And it's in part understanding that patients can present with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy at a variety of different points in the beta-HCG level. So patients' beta-HCGs may be rising, they may be plateauing, or they may be falling. And so patients can have a very low beta-HCG that uh, has been falling over over the, the period prior to rupture. And so there's, no, there's not a beta-HCG level that you can exclude a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. And what we've seen at, uh, when looking at patients over the last seven years in the emergency department of Mount Sinai is that the lowest ruptured ectopic pregnancy beta-HCG level was around was uh, 44, and the highest we've seen was around 39,000. So any, any patient who presents to the emergency department with a detectable serum beta-HCG should still be considered as possibly having a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. All right. Great. So the second pitfall there would be ruling out ectopic pregnancy based on a low beta-HCG level. Really, any beta-HCG level uh, is consistent with an ectopic pregnancy. The other thing I noticed with this patient was that they had no identifiable risk factors uh, for ectopic pregnancy. What does the literature say out there in terms of the value of risk factors in helping you rule in or rule out ectopic pregnancy? So we know that there are risk factors that are associated with with ectopic pregnancy. So in vitro fertilization, smoking, history of pelvic inflammatory disease, any history of a sexually transmitted infection, uh, risk factors that have been identified. However, the majority of patients, so more than 50% of patients who are presenting with ectopic pregnancy will not have any risk factors present in, in their history. And wow. The, the majority of patients won't have any risk factors. That kind of sucks. 
<laughs> because here we are trying to, you know, change our pretest probability of a patient having an ectopic. The risk factor, it seems like, you know, the risk factors aren't very helpful. A urine beta HCG certainly isn't helpful. Even the serum beta HCG doesn't help us that much. Is there anything besides a transvaginal ultrasound that can help us rule in or rule out an ectopic pregnancy? So, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, many aspects of the history and physical exam are not going to be helpful in this in this clinical context. However, we are fortunate to uh, have point-of-care ultrasound available to us, which can help us exclude ectopic pregnancy when we identify an intrauterine pregnancy utilizing POCUS. So if you have an intrauterine pregnancy that's visualized on a point-of-care ultrasound, your likelihood of having ectopic pregnancy now becomes negligible because an ectopic pregnancy in that scenario is going to be a heterotopic pregnancy. And in patients that are not undergoing assisted reproductive technologies, the rate of heterotopic pregnancy in the general population is around 1 in 50,000. Wow. So that that's uh, really quite rare. The other thing I noticed with this patient uh, was that they had perfectly normal vital signs, uh, despite the fact that they had a liter and a half of blood in their in uh, their belly from their ruptured ectopic, uh, which is quite amazing. Even to the point that when she was going into the operating room, the last documented vital signs were completely normal, despite having a liter and a half of blood in her abdomen. And I think that speaks to the physiologic reserve in this patient population. They really do well hemodynamically until they've lost a significant amount of blood. And at that point, they become very unstable. So, Dr. Varner, you had mentioned uh, that POCUS can help us rule out an ectopic pregnancy, but it doesn't always help us. That brings us to doing a transvaginal ultrasound done in the radiology department. You know, which patients need a transvaginal ultrasound and how soon do they need them? I mean, this is a, a big problem in some centers where uh, there's not 24-hour access to transvaginal ultrasound. It's, this is a great question and a great topic of discussion. And if you look in the obstetrical literature, the recommendations in this patient population is if you have a patient presenting with first trimester bleeding or abdominal pain, they should be undergoing definitive transvaginal ultrasound assessment to exclude ectopic pregnancy. And the, you know, the challenge in, in many centers is that we don't have 24-hour ultrasound availability. And I do think that POCUS can assist us with bridging that gap. But if you have a point-of-care ultrasound assessment done uh, that does not document an intrauterine pregnancy and your patient has pain, vaginal bleeding, and a positive beta-HCG, they really should be undergoing urgent transvaginal ultrasound assessment to make sure that they don't have an ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, given that the risk factors aren't very helpful, that the physical exam isn't very helpful, that the vital signs aren't very helpful, that pretty much any serum beta-HCG level, you can still have an ectopic, uh, it makes sense that these patients all need a pretty quick transvaginal ultrasound because many of them will go on to rupture. What about the situation when someone's been put on methotrexate for a stable ectopic? and they come back to the emergency department with belly pain. Are those the kind of patients that we need to worry about a ruptured ectopic pregnancy in? So methotrexate has been extensively studied, both prospectively as well as in the clinical trial setting. And patients um, can be safely medically managed using methotrexate 
in certain clinical indications. Uh, so these patients generally have a low beta-HCG. Uh, they don't have a fetal pole or yolk sac identifiable. They are without pain, and they don't have any of the relative contraindications uh, to receiving methotrexate treatment, which is a beta-HCG of greater than 5,000, detection of fetal cardiac activity, or an ectopic pregnancy size of greater than 4 centimeters. So in, in that clinical context, the success rate of, of methotrexate treatment is uh, around uh, 90%. However, 10% of these patients fail methotrexate treatment, and then a portion of these patients are going to have a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. And so, unfortunately, if a patient is uh, presenting to the emergency department and is on methotrexate and has pain, we still need to consider ruptured ectopic pregnancy as a possibility uh, in these patients and need to work uh, and assess them accordingly. And it's also important to to note that even if this patient does not have a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, if they are now experiencing new pain, it's important for their gynecologist to know that the patient has new pain because it may change whether or not the patient continues with the, the medical management or if they then uh, opt to have elective surgical management of the ectopic pregnancy. All right. So... There's a lot of uh, pitfalls we just unpacked there. One, that ruling out ectopic pregnancy based on a beta-HCG level uh, is one of the big pitfalls that any beta-HCG level can be present uh, with an ectopic. The second pitfall would be relying on a urine beta-HCG in early pregnancy. We know that urine beta-HCGs in early pregnancy are unreliable. There's lots of false negatives. The third pitfall would be assuming low risk of ectopic pregnancy in a patient with no identifiable risk factors. Uh, because the majority, in fact, of ectopic pregnancies discovered do not have any identifiable risk factors. The fourth pitfall would be assuming low risk of ruptured ectopic based on normal vital signs. Uh, these patients can bleed out a liter, two liters into their belly and still maintain uh, those normal vitals. The other pitfall would be forgoing or delaying a transvaginal ultrasound to rule out a topic based on the history, physical, and beta uh, in really any patient with a first trimester bleed or first trimester belly pain. Um, and then lastly, assuming that a patient taking methotrexate for known ectopic pregnancy presenting with belly pain has a low risk for rupture. Uh, they certainly do have a risk for rupture when they are on methotrexate, so you need to rule that out when they come back to your emergency department with pain. Well... Thank you so much, Dr. Varner. It was a pleasure having you on EM Cases and best of luck with all your uh, future research when it comes to ectopic pregnancies. Thanks so much, Anton. It's been a pleasure. 